Welcome to The Rundown, I'm Carrie Saldo. It's great to be here on this Friday morning, and we're going to bring in our news panel in just a minute. But first, I want to say that I'm so grateful to be back on the mend and actually have a speaking voice. I got sick, and I lost my voice for part of that. And uh, while I hated it, it turned out that my five-year-old loved it, because what I learned is that uh, he took my silence as a yes. You know, she's not saying no, so yes, I can have popsicles for breakfast. Totally, right? That seems that seems just fantastic. But uh, I have to say that I've got my voice back at a time when uh, it's pretty convenient, because we're being asked for voices to be heard coming up here on Super Tuesday, which is an issue we're going to talk about this morning with our panel. Joining me this week in studio, we have Sam Hudzik, the news director of NEPM, New England Public Media, Ryan McCollum, a political strategist, and Jim Kinney, business reporter at the Republican newspaper and Mass Live. Good morning to all of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Good morning. It's wonderful to have you. Let's get started with uh, Super Tuesday, Ryan. It's coming up just a few days on March 5th. It's regarded as the biggest day in the presidential primary campaign. Uh, Voters are going to be asked to head to the polls in 16 states, including right here in Massachusetts. Yep. Super Tuesday, Brian. Politics buffs. Is it sort of like, you know, Super Tuesday is for politics buffs as Stanley Cup is to hockey fans? Is that typically the feel? It sounds like it, but this this year's been different. This term's been a little different because I think we have a presumptive um, uh, candidate from the, you know, Republican, the challenging side this year. So, you know, uh, Nikki Haley's trying, um, but she's really not clicking with the electorate on that side of the aisle. And, and, you know, we're uh, we have a president running for re-election, and so there's not much of a fight. You know, everybody's so it's more like up. Sleepy Tuesday or Suboptimal it's Tuesday like than sleepy Super Tuesday. Tuesday. That, that's a good one. It is going to be a Sleepy Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. Well, the early. Oh yeah, Jim. Jim. Is there any interest uh, with the races down that ticket with people running for the state committees, Republican and Democrat? Yeah, I mean, from time to time there is, but. You know, I I voted already, um, hmm. and they listed like 16 people who wanted to be state committee people, and it said vote for 35. And so, <laughs> you know, we, uh, there's not really many fights. Maybe on the Republican side, there's still some of that drama between Jim Lyons and, and the party, but I don't see too much of activation on that. Hmm. And uh, you you voted early, it mm-hmm. sounds like. Yeah. I, I have yet to vote. I like to go and get my sticker. I'm old school. I like mm-hmm. to show up in my poll on, on Election Day. Um, but some early turnout numbers came in. And as of this Tuesday, which would be a week out, right, from Super Tuesday, the Secretary of State's office told Mass Live that about uh, 325 ballots have been cast so far. Also, NEPM's Adam Frenier spoke with Pittsfield City Clerk Michelle Benjamin, who told him that early voting had been slow and not really cost-effective. It costs the city a lot of money to have staff here all weekend, only to have eight people come in and vote in 12 hours. So, Sam, that was in-person voting, but Adam also um, got similar reports about turnout, similar turnout in Palmer and Ludlow. Mm -hmm. It was a different story for mail-in ballots, right? Right. Yeah. So bail-in ballots, the Secretary of State's office last night said that about a quarter of a million of those across the state had been mailed out to people after they'd requested them. More than half of those had been returned, about 400,000. But still, overall, early voting plus the mail-in ballots were looking about 9% voter turnout right now. There were some Western Mass communities that were pulling higher than that. Roe, Worthington, Hatfield, so smaller places. Belchertown was up there, too. 
Smaller Spring- places are charged up. Yeah, Springfield, though, was about 3% turnout wow. so far. So we'll see that. I would also just, I mean, this whole, like, enthusiasm gap that we're seeing um, on this uh, Super Tuesday definitely makes sense. But I would also note that we saw in Michigan earlier in the week this whole no-preference campaign. Um, people who were on the Democratic side were upset with President Biden's policies on Israel and Gaza. Mm-hmm. There's a Massachusetts group, Massachusetts uh uh, a Massachusetts group called Massachusetts Peace Action that's trying to do the same thing in Massachusetts to urge people to click no preference uh, instead of voting for Biden on mm. Super Tuesday. So certainly something to watch there yeah. to see how that happens in Massachusetts. Uh, Jim, you know, you're a reporter as you head out on the ground. Elections tend to be a, a busy time for any reporter, but your sense of how voters are approaching Super Tuesday, have you heard anything yet? People engaged, not really care? I don't see a lot of activity out there. I think I've seen one Nikki Healy sign yeah. uh, in Westfield. <laughs> um, I did notice some people coming and going in Westfield City Hall when I was doing some basically errands last weekend. So there are some people who are doing it, but the numbers just aren't there. And I, There's no reason to have a lot of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. We kind of know what the headlines going to be you could write the lead of that story now we might we might write the lead of that story (laughs) (laughs) and just have it ready to go and and in the queue well so i think we've landed on sleepy tuesday instead of super tuesday uh jim you had a fantastic deep dive this week in the republican regarding the springfield diocese and uh the headline was as springfield diocese unloads real estate some cite frustrations as landmarks stand idle And as your reporting taught us, the Catholic Church, and this blew my mind, the Catholic Church is the largest non-government property owner on earth. How did you Mm -hmm. come by that stat? Um, This is an issue that's happening at Catholic dioceses all over the country, particularly in the Northeast and the Upper Midwest. So, surprise, surprise, there are people at Notre Dame University who study this. And they have a website and were happy to talk with me and kind of walk me through um, what the issues that they see, and they're still trying to get a handle on, get their arms around the scope of it nationally. Uh, they admit that there's not a diocese around the country that's really squared the circle. Mm-hmm. They have some really interesting case studies they they published, including some folks in Ohio um, who have converted unused church real estate property land to community gardens, urban farming, which we've seen people do that here in Springfield and elsewhere. Yeah. And so obviously an adaptive reuse that probably people in this region would welcome because I think it was in Holyoke, you heard from city, some city officials there who feel like, you know, there's this view among them that Catholic church buildings have this tradition of demolition instead of adaptive reuse or rehab and is there a clear sense of, of why that is well where there was Mater della Rosa which was a the predominantly Polish parish in town beautiful big building that was a real landmark and it was torn down after members of that church had tried to fight to save it in the city had they tried stayed to... in vigil for a really long time uh-huh. at that they church slept if I remember. In it. Yeah, yeah right yeah uh they slept in it and it was this huge long fight and it felt like the more that the community 
started to come up with ideas to save it the more the diocese, under a number of bishops, dug in its heels and said, we're tearing it down. Mm. Um, and frustrating now is that nothing has happened with that property. Yep. Um, so not only do you lose this gorgeous landmark, but now you get to drive past a vacant yeah. lot every day. Yeah, I really feel for, for mayors and town administrators in those towns that have these landmarks that are usually in the center of a neighborhood, right? That's where the churches were, uh, for better or less, um, and for better or worse. And so now you're trying to revitalize a place like Holyoke. Um, you're trying to get these properties back into actually paying taxes, right? They're sitting on land. They're not paying any taxes. So the diocese doesn't have much of a, of a, of a push to do anything. They can sit there and sit on the land. Uh, wherein, you know, they're getting, they should be getting developers in there to do something with that and put it back on the tax rolls um, or do something themselves with it. And, and I should say, on balance, and I learned this from your reporting, <clears throat> Jim, that there have been about 90 sales over approximately the past 20 years that the diocese counts and saying, you know, there is forward motion here. This this issue is something that we are looking at. And I believe Carolyn McGrath, who's a spokesman for the diocese, told you, quote, it's always our initial preference to sell buildings for reuse, preferably in a manner that benefits the local community. Um, are there some local sales in the works? And what do we know about that? Yeah, there are. Um, in, in Westfield, um, there's a former uh, parsonage, uh, a, a house used by priests uh, on Elm Street that the city had wanted the property for a new police station. The negotiations took an awfully long time, and the sales reported is dead because the two sides couldn't come close on price. Private donors, including the real estate person the diocese hires kicked in money to make it happen. There's also uh, in Northampton the real landmark St. Mary of the Assumption that ended up as a literal federal case. <laughs> um, and over the windows and who's in ch who has jurisdiction. Because does, there was some religious significance to those windows for the Catholic diocese because they depicted some religious scenes. And it's also in the uh, historic district. Um, so the city was saying the historic commission gets to decide what happens on the outside of this building. Yeah. That one sold for well under what was long the asking price. So that might be an indication that they're getting more aggressive in moving some properties. The Republican uh, editorialized about this topic that you reported on, and they said, quote, while cities and towns are not parties in these real estate transactions, they are stakeholders who deserve consideration and respect. Sam, your thoughts on not owners, but stakeholders? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we've hit on in this conversation, right? And, and you mentioned about local officials getting frustrated, state rep air, former state rep Aaron Vega, now an economic development official in Holyoke, was really complaining in Jim's article about lack of communication from the diocese. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting, sort of as we see all of this play out, right, this all has to do with contraction of the Catholic Church through the years and the closing of, of different parishes and a whole lot of upheaval in a time of, you know, just just religion in general, right? And and definitely the Catholic Church dealing with its, its new numbers as it comes to membership. Um, but it's going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out. I think Jim's stories, stories like that really shed a light on this huge uh, property owner and what this means for these local cities and towns. Mm -hmm. Something we'll keep watching and keep bugging you about, <laughs> Jim Kinney. Phil, I'm going to ask for your help on this one. Let's uh, bring in some sweet, sweet R&B music, if, if we could. Hey, 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. At least Ryan got it. 90s, <laughs> 90s music, some, some yeah, R&B, courtesy of uh, the British singer Mark Morrison there. UMass is returning to the MAC. In fact, the MAC conference, the Mid-Atlantic American Conference, to be uh, more specific. Uh, the MAC, as it's known, this will start in the 2025-2026 academic year. Arkar Njiri from NEPM spoke with Mass Live's Matt Vitor, who said that this means good things for UMass's football program. And uh, Matt explained a little bit more about why that is. As other conferences around the country are starting to move from eight games to nine games, it was going to be harder for UMass to schedule games. If they're going to prioritize football, they were going to have to get into a conference of some kind. Yeah, Ryan, I see you, see you nodding yeah. your head there. You played college football. I did. What are your thoughts on this move? I think it's a smart move. I know folks, um, you know, have some, um, you know, touching feeling towards the A-10 and when UMass was UMass. Um, but football is king when it comes to college sports. And we're going to see these conferences actually start to get bigger and bigger. And UMass needs to become relevant soon. And if they become relevant soon, they'll be able to maybe hitch on to a second-tier conference as the Big Ten and the SEC kind of just become like 25, 2016 conferences. Um, and then maybe like a BC starts a different conference kind of in the Northeast. You need to be a regional power within the next five, six years or you're going to be left out. Well, while this might be uh, good news for some folks, oh, I'm sorry, Sam, did you have something? No, no, I think that's so interesting, this idea of like regional power, too, because the MAC is not a regional mm -hmm. conference, mm -hmm. right? Like, which is it's the whole reason why, um, or a main reason why UMass back in 2014, when it was faced with this decision about whether it was going to move all of its sports over to the MAC, decided not to, right? Yep. The AD at the time said that this was about sort of student welfare, student athlete welfare, because this is a lot of travel, the closest mm -hmm. school is in Buffalo, and most of them are in Michigan and Ohio. So this is going to be a really interesting thing about how UMass sort of develops this and how it ends up working out with student-athletes. But as, as Ryan referenced there about conferences, I mean, this is a time of huge upheaval huge. across college sports. So UMass just probably did not, at the end of the day, want to be left the last one standing without a home. Hmm. Geography's really out the window. You know, you have... In in the fall, Rutgers versus Southern Cal is going to be a Big Ten game mm -hmm. <laughs> because all the they're chasing TV money. It's eat or be eaten. Sure. Also with Mac, what does that mean when they have the Thursday night games? Because Mac is famous for Thursday oh, night football. Wednesday this season. Yeah, Maction they call it. <laughs> so, but but that will you know so like you know where are UMass like so UMass football. On a Saturday, those kids weren't going to the games like they do at Notre Dame, per se. Um, if it's a Wednesday night and it's the only game in town, um, it's going to be much more popular. If it's the only game on the tube, we're going to watch more UMass football because um, it's not competing against Notre Dame or Southern Cal on a Saturday. It's the only game in town on a Wednesday, so it'll be kind of cool. And Matt Vitor was also saying to Kari that while it might be sort of good news for football, less so perhaps for basketball, um, where it would be harder for UMass to schedule good games, Vitor was saying. Um, so basketball is going to need to now take a different approach as how they operate in this conference is what he was explaining. But I know very little about sports, but I do recall that basketball was sort of big bucks for UMass, right? So is this change going to then impact that possibility for UMass? 
Well, I think Matt's reporting was also talking about how, how you know, the MAC is a much less prestigious school when it comes to basketball, mm-hmm. and that's talking about men's and women's side. And you're talking about uh, uh, the school where, I mean, with in the A10, right, the potential to not win the conference championship and still get an sure. at-large bid yep. for the NCAA tournament, that is much less likely in the MAC. Yeah, it's much, uh, but you have to look forward, right? So I don't know if the A10 is going to exist in five or six years, and so you don't want to be left, you know, holding the bag, um, as most of those teams in the A10 probably will in five or six years. Like St. Joe's, I don't know what's going to happen to St. Joe's six years from now when college sports becomes this very, very different thing than what we see now. Well, we're going to leave that issue here. We didn't really talk about women's sports. I have to flag that here. Mm -hmm. And and in a future conversation, I would definitely like to do that. But uh, we will be back to talk with our panel more about the ticking clock on to-go cocktails and also updates on the SJC nomination. And uh, you are listening to The Rundown here on 88.5 NEPM. Stay with us. You're listening to The Rundown here on 88.5 NEPM. I'm Carrie Saldo here with me in studio. This week's news hounds, Jim Kinney, Ryan McCollum, and Sam Hudzik. It's uh, decision time is coming up here on to-go cocktails. The story from the Statehouse News Service, or uh, bevies in bags, as I like to call them. <laughs> they came around during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, they were really meant to bolster struggling restaurants who were really limited to takeout service at that time. This program, the to-go cocktails, could expire at the end of March without any additional action. Mass Package Store Association wants the practice to end. They're saying that it's hurting their locally owned stores. There was a hearing this week, and Senator Jake Oliveira, our Ludlow Democrat, didn't quite to see seem to be buying what uh, Mass Pack was selling. Here's part of what he said. I can go to one of your establishments, and for $14, I can get a fifth of vodka or, or a nip or something else that can get me drunk a lot faster than paying $14 for a Cosmo at a place down the road. Ryan, thoughts, yeah. thoughts on this one? Well, the, the Mass Package Store Association has been um, notorious, not in, even, not in a bad way, of like defending their turf. Um, you know, I was just in South Carolina uh, visiting my family, and, you know, there's alcohol and beer everywhere, wherever you go. Like, CVS has it. And so Massachusetts has these package stores, and these local package stores are a dying breed across the country. And so they're always trying to defend their turf. Um, and it's, it's amazing that we still have all these local package stores, and they haven't been gobbled up, and they've tried in the past to have um, petitions, and uh, the grocery stores have tried to move to have more of the, the beer and wine, at least, but they've been able to fend it off. So they're always going to defend off whatever it is. With that said, I mean, the senator makes a great point. I mean, it's not logical that we can't buy alcohol from a place that already has a liquor license. It's not like it's something new. These restaurants have a liquor license, so they should be able to sell the cocktails. Um, but they're going to defend themselves as much as they can. And, and isn't it also the, the larger package store industry in general, uh, and I think Oliveira made this point during the hearing, is that they've got a lot of pressure on them from other other uh, entities, whether it's larger chain stores that they feel like or have more buying power than mm-hmm. maybe some of these smaller locals. So it could be perhaps they're feeling the pinch in that other area, so they're just trying to jockey and defend whatever um, turf it is that they had. And, and 
to call to cancel to go cocktails is more about these other pressures you know for instance the impending threats that are that are flooding the markets thoughts thoughts on this yeah and I'm, I, that, uh, that's a really good point and it, that ties in sort of with that ballot question from last year right but I it, just as a sort of a reminder this policy came out of the pandemic right mm-hmm. like this was this was a way to save the restaurants at this time when they couldn't have uh, dining inside or even after that when people just didn't want to dine uh, inside and I think that's sort of the package store associations Um, statement that they were making during that hearing was, you know, we were in the room when this deal was made and it was supposed to be temporary and last just a few months and now we're coming on four years and it's Mm -hmm. looking And it's been extended. Yeah. And And Oliveira was like, you know, I've seen restaurants close all over the place in my town, but I haven't seen any package stores Mm -hmm. close. And the package association said, hey, we're struggling too. You just don't see it in the same visible way because the licenses transfer um, and they keep the same name. So it might just be under a new person. Maybe they were having some financial struggles, but it's just not as visible to the public as that shuttered restaurant Mm -hmm. down the Mm -hmm. street. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, Jim. I'd love to know how popular the bevies and bags really are. I don't see a lot of people. I myself have never had one. It's too expensive. I mean, I I was really excited about it when they did it. I was like, oh, that's going to be great. And then I looked at the menus and I'm like, come on. That's not 14, happen. 15, yeah. I have very simple taste, so it really wouldn't make sense to... <laughs> You're a beer guy. Yeah. Do Bud Lights. Yeah, Bud Lights. <laughs> For eight bucks. But yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. They gotta defend, they're going to defend their turf. Um, and, you know, just because it came out came about because of the pandemic doesn't mean we should stop doing it. There's been a lot of things that have, that have come out during the pandemic that we looked around like, hey, this actually works better. Yeah, like hybrid probably, meetings. Right? Hybrid meetings yeah. or working from home or making sure to wash your hands all the time. Like there's been some great lessons that we should continue to repeat. Um, so that argument I don't really, you know, go for. I think good government's good government. And if it, it if it's an accident that something becomes good government, then you keep it. So to Jim's point, like if we don't have a ton of evidence about how popular these have actually been, maybe they haven't been hugely popular, but restaurants are seeing a little bump with that mm-hmm. revenue. Are we likely to then see uh, the legislature approve this and let to-go cocktails stay? Or would you think? Any thoughts on that? Well, as you to your point, the uh, package stores have legendary lobbying power. And there's a lot of them in all these little towns. So I would imagine that Jake got a lot of phone calls and emails over the past week or so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I guess uh, if, if I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna wager that I think they will allow them to stay in place, and I'll buy a round if I'm wrong. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, Is that good go. for everybody? Good. All right, from let's... a package store. We'll <laughs> <laughs> um, let's move on here, and I want to talk about two stories that we've talked about in the past on the rundowns. We might move through them a, a, a bit more quickly, but some updates. Uh, there, there was new. Uh, updated reporting on what's happening with the Supreme Judicial Court nomination, Gabrielle Wallahojan. And Sam, you talked to Tara Jacobs, who's a member of the Governor's Council, and she was the lone no vote in the appointment of Gabrielle Wallahojan to the Supreme Judicial Court. And here's part of what Jacobs said to you. She has breathed rarefied air from the time she was young, education, um, and through her career. And my perception from that is um, she intellectualizes the marginalized community's struggle in a way that it feels very much a bubble of privilege and detached from the struggle itself. 
And I should say that was uh, Tara Jacobs speaking at the hearing for the appointment mm-hmm. of Gabriella Wilhoja, not directly to you. Mm-hmm. What else did you hear her, Tara Jacobs, saying yeah. about this? Well, I, you know, and I did talk to her the day that the that the nomination was announced, and um, with the exception of that uh, sort of privilege argument that she made there in that tape, she also brought up two other big things. You know, having to do with um, the fact that there's no Western Mass representative on the Supreme Judicial Court and hasn't been for about eight years. There's a pretty big lobbying effort by the legal community in Western Mass to get uh, uh, Healy to for at least one of the two vacancies that she's recently filled on the court to pick someone from Western Mass, and that didn't happen. So she was frustrated by that. And then, of course, you know, Gabrielle Wolohogin, former longtime domestic partner of Governor Healy, and um, Tara Jacobs said that she was just really concerned by the insider baseball message that that sends, that it tells other people uh, that they need not apply if they don't have really strong connections. Uh, it wasn't a problem for the other governor's counselors. They supported the nomination, but Tara Jacobs was the, the only no vote. Hmm. Ryan, any thoughts on this one? No, I mean, it's, it was interesting to see, um, you know, governor's counselor Jacobs to use the woman's resume almost against her, right? Like you've been born in the privilege and you've gone to Harvard and you've done this and you've been, you know, a judge for so long. You're at Wilmer and Hale. I mean, that, that, she has an impressive resume. Um, and the Wilmer Western... and Hale also another Healy connection though, because that mm-hmm. was a form she came out of before she ended up becoming AG. So. Abs- a- absolutely. Um, and so, you know, the Western mass judge piece is, is, is important, right? And so there's a lot of lobbying going on and, and it, she ran for this office. It's a political job, and so you got to think about what's the political calculus. And vote if you really want a Western Mass judge voting against this now, is that helping or hurting? And she had to make that political calculation. Another story we've been covering here on the rundown is about the education secretary, and we heard this week that Russell Johnston has been tapped to be the interim commissioner of the state's K through 12 public school systems. And our own Jill Kaufman here from NEPM dialed in on a specific impact that this could have for Western Mass um, among the assignments that Johnston will inherit as uh, part of his job is the Holyoke School Committee's push to end receivership. And uh, Mayor Joshua Garcia told Jill that that he's feeling optimistic about that. Right, Sam? Yeah, I mean, the, he was he was not sad when Jeff Riley announced that he was leaving. <laughs> this is the former commissioner who, who very recently uh, said not too fast, not so fast on uh, returning uh, Holyoke schools to local control after, you know, the better part of a decade under state receivership. So, yeah, Garcia told Jill that he he welcomed the selection um, in part because of this Western Mass tie that this guy knows Western Mass and hope that they would have, you know, better communication going forward. Hmm. Yeah, and Johnston has worked in the West Springfield School District and does have those Western Mass connections. Do you think that'll mean good things for us here in Western Mass, Jim? Yeah, um, especially what was especially frustrating in Holyoke was not that they were told no or not so fast, but that they weren't told what they didn't mm-hmm. do. Exactly. They weren't given the areas for improvement, like on the report card. <laughs> they, they weren't told. <laughs> Needs more improvement because. Yeah. So what do you do with that if you're the municipality? What do you do with that if you're Garcia in the school? Yeah. Yeah. 
it's it's an issue that we'll continue to keep watching. Something occurred to me, Ryan, also, though, mm-hmm. it, Johnston has had kind of a foot in both worlds, given sure. that he spent time out here in Western Mass, but has been working at the state level under Riley. Yeah. Uh, you, do you think that that gives him an edge, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I do have to say Josh is a, is a client of mine, so i got to disclose that. Um, no, but I think it does. I think it, it just like we were talking about having a Western Mass judge is, is somebody who um, is Oh, Western. Mayor Garcia, sorry, is yeah, what Mayor you're saying. Yeah, Mayor Garcia, yeah. Um, somebody who, like having a Western Mass judge, it's great to have Western Mass folks in state government at the leadership level because they do understand Western Mass. But he's also been in Boston, so he understands how that game works, and that's a good twofer. Hmm, absolutely. All right, let's move along here to our predictions and scoops portion of our show where we ask the panel to do something that sometimes is against reporters' natures, right? Spill this tea about maybe a story you're working on or maybe just grab the crystal ball or your favorite AI tool and make a prediction about what you think will be happening in the news. And I tipped my hand a bit about my prediction for this week. Uh, It was mine's on to-go cocktails. I think they will become permanent in Massachusetts. And as a result, here's what I think. This is aspirational, perhaps. Local restaurants and local package stores, maybe they'll start thinking about some clever collaborations. That's that's what I'm thinking. Jim Kinney, what about for you? Um, I think getting to the... uh story I've been covering with the diocese, I think we're going to learn more about what the plans are for that property in Northampton. Great. Mine is that you'll see more towns that have banned cannabis start to bring it back or bring it there. You know, Southwick has just had, they just had a vote last night where they're going to really entertain it. West Springfield is a town that has flipped. Um, so the market is, 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 these towns are realizing that they, they've missed out. I mean, today there's a, a grand opening for um, Dazed and Munson, another client of mine. Um, and so it's going to start to to even out in some of these communities that you don't think had cannabis at one point. Sam, how about for you? Well, uh, m- mine is actually tied in with the official kickoff of the maple maple sugaring season this oh, morning. Yeah, We've got the right. uh, state ag director up in Northfield for a ceremonial tapping, and my six year old wants us to tap a tree in our backyard. <laughs> And my prediction is that it's going to go terribly. Um, uh, I'm going to leave that to professionals and just go to the grocery store. <laughs> so maybe some maple flavored candy coming yeah, to your house you sometime very soon. A maple tree in your backyard. Oh, my thanks. That'll take some investigation. I think. Yeah. <laughs> my thanks to everyone here this morning. Sam Hugsley, Ryan McCollum, and Jim Kinney. Thanks for being here. There's more to come on the rundown after this break. We'll dig into the legacy of civil rights leader W.E.B. Du Bois. I'm Carrie Saldo. This is The Rundown here on 88.5 and EPM. Welcome back to The Rundown. I'm Carrie Saldo. Leap Year gave us an extra day of February, and here at The Rundown, we're adding just one more day so that we can bring you this final installment of our Black History Month interview series, discussing how the region's past informs the present here in Western Mass. Civil rights pioneer and founder of the NAACP, W.E.B. Du Bois, was born in 1868 in Great Barrington. From that small community, Du Bois went on to graduate from Harvard and would famously write and speak about black Americans' struggle for equality. And yet, he's still not as widely known as leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. or Ida B. Wells. Elevating Du Bois' work is among the goals of the W.E.B. Du Bois Center for Freedom and Democracy in Great Barrington, and I'm speaking with two of its board members. Nye Whitaker and John Spear, welcome to The Rundown. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you so much, Carrie, for having us. So Nye is the executive director of the Du Bois Center for Freedom and Democracy, and John is the secretary and uh, new leadership at your organization. But I want to start with the mission of your organizations, twofold, as I understand it. And the first is to mark the life and the legacy of civil rights pioneer, obviously, W.E.B. Du Bois. And man, it is it is just a huge legacy that this gentleman has. And instead of giving a brief synopsis here, I just want to point out when I was doing some research, Britannica Online calls Du Bois the most important Black protest leader in the United States during the first half of the 20th century. And just what a powerful statement there, because there are so many uh, just phenomenal Black leaders in that first part of the 20th century. Nai, when you hear that statement, why do you think that that is? You just gave me chills uh, listening to you say that. Um, I think it's, you know, because uh, Du Bois um, is one of those longstanding and ever relevant leaders. Um, he uh, helped uh, co-found the NAACP, which we know has had historic contributions uh, to the trajectory of the life of African-Americans um, across America and beyond. And I think it's because he had a footprint in so many places and spaces, not only here in his um, you know, hometown, uh, of Great Barrington, but in Berlin, Germany, in Ghana, Africa, uh, in the South, you know, as an educator at HBCUs. And I think it's because he played so many different roles, um, and not the least of his work um, as part of the team that brought together the March on Washington, of which he died two days uh, prior to um, it unfolding. And so I think that it's because of his work um, in so many places and spaces and the diversity of his vision um, that he is forever present. And I'm really excited uh, that um, he has such high acclaim and I'm super excited to bring um, the celebration of his life and legacy as a civil rights pioneer um, and the celebration of the rich African-American heritage of the Berkshires and the Clinton AME Zion Church to the community. And, and let's talk about the church place in space, because this effort, the Du Bois Center effort, actually grew out of what was the restoration of the Clinton AME Zion Church there in Great Barrington. And it also got me thinking about how there's this pattern of place-based efforts in Western Massachusetts honoring great Black leaders. I think most immediately of the David Ruggles Center in Northampton, because that came out of a part uh, of an effort to save a dwelling that was said to be destroyed, a dwelling that was really significant to the abolitionist movement there in Northampton. So John, for you, you know, thinking about the Clinton AME Zion Church in Great Barrington, what do you think the significance of that church is to Great Barrington and the Berkshires? I think the significance of that church is it's honoring the legacy and the work, first and foremost, of Ethel Dozier, one of its most prominent pastors and community members who also served as an act an activist and a nexus in this community who connected so many people, but also as a legacy of the Black church as a resistance movement, um, and how that, even in a historically white space like Great Barrington and the Berkshires, was a thriving local community. And even though it's in this state of disrepair, that we can still honor and remember that space. So I love that we're returning to this rich history and remembering those roots, that it's always been something that there's always been a marker of that resistance, that resilience and that history there. And so to me, revitalizing that church is revitalizing our own history, remembering who we are in the place of that history. Mm. And I was struck by an image on the Du Bois Center's website of 
Du Bois's high school. I think it's his high school graduation. And there's a dozen or so folks in the photograph. And he is the lone African-American person in that photo. So we're taking, we're going back to the 18, 1860s in that photo, right? Um, but Great Barrington of today is not much different, right? It is still a majority white population. So how does this work that the Du Bois Center is doing help to, you know, bring that legacy or excuse me, bring that point to the fore, right? That we're still not a diverse enough place in space. For me, I think the church and the legacy of Du Bois remind us that these people lived models and blueprint lives for us to continue the work. Du Bois carried his work across Paris, across London, to Ghana, to three Pan-Africanist Congresses, and his legacy still lives here. Ethel Dozier connected an entire disparate community across the diaspora and mostly white um, Great Barrington. And so the models for which they live their lives are the blueprints that we can go for to continue the work. And I think honoring that legacy reminds us that we have never walked alone and that we can continue to invest in that future by remembering the past and building on what they built, not forgetting it, not letting it continue to fall into a place of disrepair, but to remember that unity and that vision, even in the toughest time, because their lives, and especially Du Bois, were marked by the contours of racism and deep and embedded within that community, especially Du Bois, as we think about it, right after Reconstruction, the conditions in which he had to help found the NAACP, and the conditions in which Ethel Dozier brought a Black church into the middle of Great Barrington. So I think it's really important that we look at those models of our mentors and mirrors for how to continue that work moving forward. Hope that answers the question, Carrie. Sure, absolutely. And also, I would say it's one of the reasons why the board um, has decided to incorporate um, reflections on Du Bois's writings in its programming for the 2024 season. So the board has selected the theme of democracy, of course, coming from our name, the W.E.B. Du Bois Center for Freedom and Democracy. And we have selected a passage from uh, Du Bois's work uh, to highlight and to invite the community to reflect on um, all of our hopes and dreams for our democracy and the work that we can do together collectively to make those hopes and those dreams a reality. But I think it speaks to the fact that Du Bois's writing, his vision is something that was relevant in the past, is relevant in our present, and will continue to be relevant in the future. So you're splitting your time between the Berkshires and New York City. And MLK Day, it was announced that you were going to be the new executive director of the organization. Eugenie Sills had done that work for some time there in the Berkshires. And this is your new role. But you, for you, you're you're a former White House senior advisor, your women's vote director for the New York Democratic Party, New York University professor. You know, what attracted you to this role here in the Berkshires? Thank you, Terry, for that question. I think it's the opportunity to be part of building upon this amazing legacy and bring it to reality, to be able to help bring new people to the works of W.E.B. Du Bois, to tell the story of the rich African-American history, not only here in the Berkshires, but in the region, um, and to celebrate uh, this um, historic AME Zion Clinton Church, which had a female reverend you know, at a time when that was just unprecedented and unheard of, um, and to be a part of this amazing community as it goes on this journey. I think it's really important with all that's going on in the world for us to celebrate our rich history and the ways in which our histories are intertwined and the ways that um, we can be able to bring the message of W.E.B. Du Bois to a new generation 
to new visitors, to new communities, to new students, and hopefully develop a new generation of scholar activists that will make great contributions you know, to our world going forward and walk in his footprint. For John, for you, you've, you've been, uh, a, a, again, a more recent addition to the Berkshires community, but you've been here for, for several years now. What brought you to want to be to spend part of your time, your very, very valuable time, working with the Du Bois Center's work? So I'm also, in addition to being a teacher, I'm an equity practitioner, and Du Bois's work spoke to me on several levels. I think the only one that speaks to me more is James Baldwin. And so when I got to understand the history of Ethel Dozier and the Clinton Amy Zion Baptist Church and knowing the Amy Zion's church position within Black history in general and encouraging activism, I was, as I'm from Alabama originally, so I know a lot about the Black church, I grew up practice, and my mother worked at Tuskegee University and kind of raised me in that history. Um, and so it was attractive to me on several levels as a scholar, as a practitioner, as a human being who wanted to continue that work and understanding what it means to continue this struggle for collective racial freedom in the 21st century. So for me, that's what is that that desire for that public work and continue that. Mm. Looking at Du Bois teachings, how would you encourage people to engage with those teachings and help them inform what we're doing, you know, in the present? That's a wonderful question. And I think um, what I really love and enjoy about this new role is that I can bring so many elements of the work that I've done to it. So 20 years as a member of the faculty at NYU, uh, one of the things that the board is keenly interested in is developing curriculum that will um, be a complement to the work uh, that we will be doing and unveiling in our programming this year. So I think um, being able to take kind of bite-sized um, uh, examples of the application of Du Bois's work and writings and his vision and making it um, a, a tool that is easily accessible, whether digitally or in person, by convening people and sharing our reflections. I think um, the world is searching for safe spaces where we can have a dialogue about some of the issues that we are facing today and to really identify the ways in which um, we have commonality and so I'm hoping uh, through this work uh, with John and the rest of the board and all of those who've helped make this possible over the years that we can really make the space, um, make the center a space uh, where that can take place and that it can be um, both fun and educational, informative and community building. John, how about for you, Du Bois's, du Bois's work as, a, as a, a tool to be used today? Hmm. I think it's a great tool that helps us, as Adam Grant says, think again, um, to reflect on where we are and not allow our identity to be in a place of foreclosure, but to activate a rethinking cycle where we can redefine ourselves. And in this moment, I think it's really important that we start to redefine our country. We've needed to for quite some time. And Du Bois helps us do that because he spanned continents in search of a truth and connecting different forms of exploitation and understanding how to improve the lives of folks. And I think we can use that legacy to understand ourselves and improve our own lives and the lives of others. John Spear and Nye Whitaker of the Du Bois Center for Freedom and Democracy there in Great Barrington. Nye is the executive director. John is the secretary. I really appreciate you coming on the rundown today and helping us discuss Du Bois's legacy and also its impact that, that comes through to today. Thanks so much.
Thank you, Carrie. And if I could just add, people should stay in community with us by emailing us at events at DuBoisFreedomCenter.org or giving us a call at 413-673-1032. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, thanks. And for a complete look at our interview series, Black History Past and Present in the 413, head to our program page online at nepm.org slash the rundown. Thanks for listening this week and keep listening to The Rundown, where we catch you up on the biggest news stories of the week from Western Mass. Speaking of the news, if you have a question or a comment about what's up in our region, leave us a voicemail at 413-225-4922 or email us therundown at nepm.org. The Rundown theme is courtesy of The Love Crumbs. Our director is Tony Dunn. Our board op is Phil Bishop. Production support from Betsy Langto. And our engineers are Kara Foster, Bart Rankin, and Chuck Dubay. And I just want to say a very special thanks to Jill Kaufman and Elizabeth Roman and, of course, Tony Dunn, all of whom were pinch hitting for me when I was out sick. Thanks for the extra lift, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Rundown this first week of March 2024. Stay here up next on 885 NEPM Marketplace Tech.